So I want to start off with a story about a guy by the name of Thomas Stewart. Um, Now, Thomas was a young man, and uh, he had dreams of being a lawyer. He was working, though, at a manual labor job that he was at, and he severely damaged his eye, so much so that he lost complete sight of it. The eye could not see. So the doctor he went to feared that because of the trauma to that eye, somehow it would spread to the other eye. So they decided to have an operation to remove the eye. The operation was a complete success. They removed the eye, but when Thomas opened up his eyes, he discovered the surgeon had removed the wrong eye. True story, I know. It's kind of scary. So now he had no sight and would be blind for life. This 20-something was undaunted. He said, I'm going to go ahead and I am going to finish my education. So he kept pursuing his law degree. Even though he was blind, after four years of attending the university, he graduated at the top of his class, which is pretty spectacular. What's even more amazing is who graduated second, his brother, William. So here's the thing. In order for Thomas to pass all these classes, his brother William had to help him. William read aloud every single book, paper, article that was needed. He helped his brother write all the necessary papers, and he gave his brother the tests the entire way through. The testimony of Thomas is this. Without William and his seeing, he never would have graduated from the law school. See, the thing about us is is we're all blind. We're blind. Our natural our natural human instinct, our natural who we are because of sin, because of Adam's sin and ours that we've copiously added to that, we are blind. We cannot see. And really the only way for us to be able to see is if someone who comes along who can perfectly see shows us the way to go. The disciples who we've been following um, as we have been walking behind Jesus throughout this book of Matthew, they're blind. Maybe not completely blind, Occasionally, there's glimmers of they might be seeing a little of something. But they need to recognize, and we need to recognize, that if we're not following an actual seeing guide, if we're not following someone who can see perfectly, then we are going to be like those blind guides. We're going to fall in a pit. So today, Jesus is giving us an example of how he tells the, the disciples, this is what seeing looks like, and this is what blindness looks like. And so we're going to look at that today. Not only was it for the disciples, but it's for us here today. So where have we been? Well, if you remember, Jesus' kind of base is at the top of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is kind of a kidney bean-shaped body of water in northern Israel. He's going back and forth. He had just been hanging out on the west side, and then he went up into an area called Tyre and Sidon, which is all Gentiles. There he ran into a Canaanite woman with incredible faith. Then he traveled back down to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, again surrounded by Gentiles, those non-Jews, where he healed them all and then fed them. And now Jesus is going to get back in a boat and by himself go back to that west side, to the Jewish area. And he's going to have an encounter here with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So before we get into our passage, I want to point out Jesus repeats himself twice in this. 
In verse 6, he says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 11, he repeats it, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What's interesting here is Jesus never says specifically what that is. But what it is is very clear from the text. And so we're going to dig into it today because that warning still goes for us today. So the point of the passage is be on alert, be aware, be on watch for this leaven, for this whatever this leaven may be. So first thing we see, and we're going to actually go back to verse 39 to get the full context, but we see here is that the leaven is displayed. The the disciples, if they had been there with Jesus when the Pharisees and Sadducees came up, would have seen the leaven. Jesus sees the leaven clearly, so we need to see the leaven as well. Look at verse 39. After sending away the crowds, they were sent away with full bellies. Remember, it said they were all completely satisfied. He, Jesus, got into the boat and went to the region of Magdan. And there the Pharisees and scribes came to test him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. So, quick refresher, Pharisees and Sadducees. So the Pharisees are the super serious followers of the Jewish law of the Old Testament. Super serious because they take it so serious that they won't break any commandment and they made extra commandments to help them follow the commandments. These were just your everyday leaders. The Sadducees, on the other hand, now this is the first time they've been mentioned in Matthew, so it's okay if we don't remember. It's been a while. The Sadducees are the exact opposite. Okay, so your Pharisees are your, your blue collar, but super serious about their religion, right? While your Sadducees, they're the sophisticated upper crust. They have a nuanced view of religion. They were rich. They were the upper class. The high priest was always a Sadducee. Most of the chief priests were Sadducees. Why? Because they had the money to you know, run for these positions. They were voted in. Most of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body for the Jewish people, were Sadducees. They believed only in the first five books of the Old Testament, the ones written by Moses. They believed that God didn't have a day-to-day relationship with people. I mean, after all, why would they need that? They're so rich and so smart, they don't need God to have a relationship. They don't believe in supernatural beings and they believe in no afterlife. So these Sadducees were the exact opposites of the Pharisees. Pharisees are trying to earn their way into God's good graces. The Sadducees are going, well, we're just good. That's why God loves us. The Pharisees were the fundamentalists who added extra rules to Scripture. The Sadducees were the liberals who believed very little of Scripture unless it made them look good. These two groups actually really, really dislike each other. Uh, Later in Acts 23, the Apostle Paul uses that against them. Like the Pharisees and Sadducees are like, we need to stone Paul. And Paul's like, but don't you guys disagree about the afterlife? And then the Pharisees and Sadducees start fighting each other. And I kind of see Paul like scurry away. So they've created this diabolical alliance here. They don't agree on anything except for we don't like Jesus. Their alliance isn't based on what they share theologically. It's based on their hatred. Matter of fact, the only two times that we see Pharisees and Sadducees getting together are when they resist John the Baptist and when they resist Jesus. So this isn't a part of the sermon, but we shouldn't be surprised when we stand for Christ that sworn enemies combine together to resist us. That should not be a surprise for us. 
As we continue on in this world and the way it's going, we need to recognize that sworn enemies are going to team up against us, whether it's Democrats and Republicans, whether it's Muslims and atheists, communists and capitalists, even Red Sox fans and Yankee fans are going to team up and are going to get together and are going to go, we don't like this Christ, so therefore we hate his people. So just file that away. Keep that in your mind. Now this question, show us a sign, seems pretty innocent, right? By inference, what we can see here, and also with some of the comparison passages in Mark and in Luke, they go, we'll believe in you, if only you show us a sign. But this is disingenuous, it's not true. They don't want Jesus to do a sign so they can believe, they want Jesus to do a sign to make them look good. Look at, we got Jesus to do this. Or maybe he wouldn't do it and they can go, aha, told you, he was a fake. Now, does this test seem familiar to anybody? Well, let's kind of dig in here on this for a sec. Matthew 13, chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. This is the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares. You remember the parable? The wheat grows up and an enemy comes in and sows weeds that are actually poisonous and would kill you, but they look just like wheat, and you can't tell until they get all the way grown up, and then you have to separate them. So Jesus is talking and he says, the field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So who is this evil one that these weeds are? Well, they are the sons of the devil. They are the sons of Satan. Now this shouldn't come as a surprise that Jesus is kind of indirectly thinking of these and and seeing these people, these Pharisees and Sadducees, as sons of the devil. Look at this. Matthew 4. This is a long time ago, but you you know the passage. This is where Jesus goes off into the wilderness, and he's tempted by the devil three separate times. After 40 days of no food and no drink, all of a sudden the devil comes. And look at what it says. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That word tempted in the Greek is the word periazo, which is actually the same word as test from verse 1 interesting. So what we got here is they're doing the exact same thing that the devil did to Jesus. They're saying, jump through this hoop for me, Jesus, and if you do it, we'll believe in you. If you do it, we'll say you're the man. In John, Jesus helps us understand what's all going on here. In John 8, he says, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear me is you are not of God. Now, Jesus is talking to those who have the unbelief. He's talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So these are the sons of the evil one that have come to test him. They're standing in front of him. They're coming to test Jesus just like the devil did. In both of these events, the devil's three temptations and now the Pharisees and Sadducees, their unbelief is palpable. You can feel it. You can see it. They're not there saying, hey, you know, we just need a little more evidence. 
They're saying, we don't believe in you, so we're just going to keep asking you to do stuff. The devil does not believe in Jesus. The devil does not, doesn't want anything from Jesus except for to control him. And honestly, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're doing the same thing. They want to pull Jesus down. What's ironic here is it says, we need a sign from heaven. Even if they had one, would they accept it? Because here's the ironic thing. The Bible says there was a sign from heaven, and it was Jesus. Luke chapter 2, when Simeon and Mary are talking about the coming of Jesus, he says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign. So the sign is standing right in front of them, and they completely miss it. The most educated, the Pharisees, and the most wealthy, most highly thought of, the God of the universe is standing in front of them, and they miss it. So these groups came together in unbelief. Now before we, before we get any more farther along, I need to make sure you all understand that unbelief and doubt are two very different things. Doubt is I'm uncertain about something. And so I pursue it until I find the truth. And we all believe and we know that the Bible teaches that if you pursue your doubts, you're going to end up at Christ because He is the truth. Unbelief is the opposite of that. Unbelief is refusal to believe. And the pursuit is not to find truth, but to tear down, to disprove, to spread false beliefs. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they already made up their minds. There's no way this Jesus could possibly be the Messiah. And we see this because even later, after Jesus raises from the dead, we see very few of them coming to know the Lord. Remember, they are just like their father, the devil. And no matter what miracles Jesus would do, the devil's never going to submit to Jesus. He's never going to keep his words. Remember, he promises, I'll give you all these things, but he's the father of what? Lies. Devil's not going to keep his word. He would never have faith in Jesus. So the Pharisees and Sadducees, all they're doing right now is keeping the family business going. So that's the, this is kind of the start. Now we see Jesus' response. And his response is, sign of Jonah is coming. Mark 8.12 adds in one little kind of extra bit here. Before Jesus answers him, it says in Mark 8.12, he sighed deeply in his spirit. So Jesus is standing there. He's looking at these Pharisees and Sadducees, and he goes, oh, really, you guys? And I don't, think he's, I don't think he's annoyed. I think he's saddened. I mean, just like when he's weeping over Jerusalem, I think he's going, oh, you know so much, but you're missing it. And Jesus answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Remember, Jesus had said earlier that the Pharisees were blind guides, Matthew 5, 14. He said, let them alone, they're blind guides. The blind will lead the blind and both will fall in a, a pit. Now it's easy to use the Pharisees and now the Sadducees as kind of our own personal punching bag. It's easy for us to go, oh yeah, look at them, they're unbelievers, they're so bad. But we need to recognize, we need to remember where we've come from. Because we need to understand that if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit reaching down and grabbing us, some of us by the scruff of our neck, and pulling us to Him, we would not be where we are at right now. Remember what the Bible says in Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, remember every person in the world knows there's a God. 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Just like these Pharisees. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Psalm 82, verse 5, they have neither knowledge or understanding, they walk about in darkness. See, we need to not be cocky about this and think that we have arrived to understanding Jesus because of something we've done. It's because of what He has done. It's how He has changed hearts. It's how He has brought us to where we are today. And remember, this, this whole section we're looking at today, this whole thing is about getting the disciples to not give in to unbelief to not give in to blindness and darkness. He's not talking to the Pharisees about their blindness. He's talking about his followers and their blindness. So right here and right now, we need to understand some of us in this room, well, all of us in this room are blind to certain areas of unbelief in our life. We need to have the Lord show us where that is. So the Pharisees and Sadducees are so deep in their unbelief that they can't see what's right in front of them. Unbelief makes them blind. Jesus knew that even if he did another more amazing miracle, they wouldn't believe. It's not evidence that they have a problem with. It's belief. See, the Pharisees and Sadducees are not stupid, right? It's easy to kind of go that way because we say, oh, they're, the, they're kind of the foil. They're the, they're the bad guys. They're the villains. But they're not stupid. They can interpret things. They understand things. They can interpret weather. This phrase that you see here about the, the sky actually started off with shepherds and later on became sailors, and we have this phrase to this day, red sky at morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. But even with how great they are at meteorology, they can't see Jesus for who he is. And Jesus points this out. He says, I thought you guys were theologians. I thought you guys were Bible scholars. Your expertise is actually in telling the weather compared to what you are missing right in front of you. Seeing is not believing. The truth is one does not see until one believes. And the Lord brings about belief. Look at verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Spurgeon says their unbelief was high treason against the divine majesty. Jesus actually goes even more intimate than high treason. It's not just he's the king and you're saying, you're not the king, I'm not going to follow you. It's even worse than that. He says it's an evil and adulterous generation, a vicious, marriage-breaking generation lusting for a sign. So where did adultery come from in this? Well, it's like this. Those who were seeking for a sign were searching for a new husband. The, the, the word picture we get in the Bible is that God is the husband of Israel, and Israel is the bride. And we've seen this, I mean, even as far back as the, as the Exodus, right? Jesus, God is the husband, and this is his bride. He pulls them out, and as soon as the husband's not available for a little bit, they try to find some other God, and it's compared to adultery. Same thing with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're looking at God in the flesh, And they're going, no, actually, we have somebody else we'd rather have. Jesus is the divine husband, and they refuse to listen to him, to honor him, to love him and embrace him. Now compare that to where we've been the last two weeks, where we have Gentiles, these non-Jews, who want nothing to do with the God of Israel, but all of a sudden they see him for who he is, and they have the faith. They have the mega faith. 
They are the ones that are not in the family, and yet they desire the husband that Israel is supposed to know. So Jesus says, I will show you the sign of Jonah. Now the good news is, is that Jesus has already explained to us what this means. Matthew 12, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great, great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, if you remember your story of Jonah, Jonah is not a miracle worker. He does exactly zero miracles, zero signs. So what is this sign of Jonah? I mean, Jesus is telling us it's his death and resurrection. But even more than that, Jonah was a prophet, right? And he went to the people of Nineveh, an enemy nation, and preached to them. Jonah was the sign. Jonah's life, getting thrown overboard in, the, in the, the raging sea and living inside of a fish or a whale for X number of days and then being spat out onto the, the, the seashore and then going. This is the picture that Jesus says. Jesus is coming to an enemy nation. He's coming to this world where we are all enemies because of our sin. And he is preaching the good news. And how do we know that what he's saying is true? Because he died and he rose again. And so what Jesus is saying here with this sign of Jonah is he's saying, I've already done plenty of miracles, but that's not why I'm here. Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, that the healings were to point us forward to the fact that he's going to heal our biggest problem, which is our relationship with God, our sin problem. Jesus is saying, the only sign I can give you is the sign of Jonah. And that confirms that not only did I die for your sins, but the fact that I am reborn means God took it, which means you are no longer in your sins. You know, these Pharisees and Sadducees are not any different than people nowadays. We are all looking for signs. We are looking for signs. Some people want to try to communicate with the dead. Some try to use the stars. Some try to communicate with spiritual beings of some sort. I've heard about that in the news just recently. And for some reason, the Word of God is like the last thing they'll try when it should be the first. See, we have all the signs we need, all right? The, the, the three days in the grave, Jesus dying on the cross tells us three things. One, it tells us God loves us. He sent His most important, most important thing in all of creation, His Son. Secondly, Jesus came to heal us, not only of our, of our problems we have in this earth, but our biggest problem, our sin. And then finally, Jesus will be coming again. And just like he rose from the grave, he's going to descend from heaven and it will be his kingdom. This is the good news. And this is the invitation that he's given to the Pharisees. And this will be the last one they get. From this point on, in the book of Matthew, there's no more invitations to the Pharisees. Instead, it's all condemnation. It's all, you had your chance. You know the truth. You're choosing to not believe it. So now we see Jesus' warning about the leaven. Mark tells us that Jesus got in a boat and left and went to the northern shore near the city of Bethsaida. When he got there, the disciples were there. Look at verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. It's an interesting phrase there. Why is Matthew introducing this bread thing right at the beginning? Well, it's because 
It was the topic of discussion for the disciples, and it was the focus of their attention. He wants us to see what this not bringing bread is actually showing us about the heart condition of the disciples. Look at verse 6. So again, Jesus comes forth with, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this is a great translation. It's like literal word for word in the Greek. It means be on guard. He's putting a warning sign out. You know, warning There's sharks in the water. I mean, I don't know if they have signs like that. If they do, don't go in the water. But he's saying, warning, beware, this is a big deal. And so, verse 7, they begin discussing amongst themselves, saying, we brought no bread. Now let me give you an illustration of what the disciples are doing here. Husband and wife are driving in a car. And they're on vacation. And as they're driving... They, they go out onto a drawbridge and they get about halfway over and they realize the drawbridge is coming up and the husband goes, oh my gosh, we're going to crash into the water. And the wife goes, you know, I forgot my swimsuit and my tanning lotion. Oh, man. Now, unless you think I'm chauvinist and think only women would be missing the oblivious, we all know who really would. Or it's like this, a husband and wife are driving together and there's a big sign and it says, road washed out ahead. And the wife goes, honey, look, the sign says road washed out. The husband, not wisely, pulls his phone out. Says, but honey, it says on here, on the GPS, that it's fine. I think it'll be okay. Talk about oblivious to what's going on. Talk about missing the entire point completely. This is what the disciples are doing here. They're still not getting it. Jesus is wanting to show them, hey, remember all of the lessons I've taught you. We've been dealing with these Pharisees for a very long time. As a matter of fact, chapter 15, there was a big interaction between the disciples and Jesus over the Pharisees. And Jesus goes, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples go, you know, we forgot bread. So what Jesus is saying is we can't buy bread from the Pharisees. Got it. That's not it. See, the thing about it is, we are so quick to be just like the disciples and forget what the Lord has taught us. We are so quick to forget the lessons of fill in the blank. What was it that you learned from the Lord? We forget those things. We need to repent of our forgetfulness. We need to repent of our unbelief. We need to repent of our worries. Remember what Jesus taught these same disciples in Matthew 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about the body and what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They neither soar nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? But if God so clothes the grass of the fields, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown in the oven, will he not more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. That's in our passage. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, the disciples had so focused on what was right in front of them, their lack of bread, that they had become so worldly minded that they were of no heavenly good. They had become so focused on their need that they forgot all the things that the Lord had done for them. And that is us. But Jesus, praise the Lord, is changing the way they see. 
He's working through them with this. And I love this. This is how Jesus disciples. He doesn't sit back and just preach. Instead, he gets down in the muck with them, right where they're at, and goes, okay, I know you're not seeing this now, but look, this is what it is. Okay, come on, look over here. This is the way Jesus does discipleship, by walking with the blind and teaching them to see. And praise the Lord, he still does that today. Look at verse 8. Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you had no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered? Anyone ever notice that the more loaves Jesus has to work with, the less he produces? You ever notice that? Like five loaves produces 5,000? So my, my brain with a little bit of math, not very good math, but doing that, what if Jesus had one loaf? Are we talking 40,000 pieces of bread? What if he had zero? Feed the world, right? I mean, just imagine, he doesn't even need our bread, but he's used it. Anyway, that was a side note. He calls them little faith. Where, why is it little faith? Because they're not trusting in what they've learned. And what they've been learning about is their Lord and Savior. So why does Jesus point to the bread that they've gathered? He says, guys, this is not about bread. If it was about bread, I wouldn't have given you bread, right? It would have been like, poof, this bread turns into tofu, or this bread turns into something else. If bread's the problem, I wouldn't have used bread before. So it's not the problem. Guys, get off of that. Instead, remember what you learned from those lessons. What did we learn from those lessons? The Lord provides. The Lord is compassionate. The Lord is the one who takes care of our needs. The Lord is the one who heals our infirmaries. All of these things are forgotten because they said, we have no bread. We need to remember what the Lord has done. We need to remember when he's provided, when he's been trustworthy, when he's shown himself. One of the things we've done over the last, I don't know, five or six years in the summer is we do psalms. We've been going through the psalms, and this summer we're doing, I think, Psalm 95 to 103 in the summer. And each of these psalms, especially the last two years, have been history lessons. History lessons. So Israel's singing songs about their history. Now, why is that the case? Because just like us, we forget what the Lord has done. That we forget that we all have experienced our own exodus. We forget that the Lord has pulled us from death to life. We forget the many times where he's provided because at this moment, he's not providing the way we would like. Or at this moment, I am so focused on a specific thing that I can't see and remember all the things that he's done in the past. So we must change how we see things. We need to remember the history we have with Jesus so that our view of the future changes. A correct historical view can change our eschatological view. The end of time. When we see Christ rightly in what he has done and is doing, we can hope correctly in what he will do. So we forget. We must never forget, but what we do is we forget. So how can this forgetting be countered? How can we get rid of this forgetting? Well, the passage kind of has an answer, but we got to get through the rest of the verses, so wait to the end. It's coming. Look at verse 11. How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Again, Jesus is going, I've been with you now for a year or two. You're still not getting it. He's holding up the standard of, you need to not forget. And then he says again, verse 11, beware of the leaven 
of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So at this point, you're going, okay, what is this leaven? Because I want to avoid it. It sounds bad. I'm not going to tell you yet. Just wait. But you notice what Jesus does not do here. He doesn't pick some big baddie. He doesn't say, beware of the red dragon who breathes out false prophecies. Beware of this group of teachers. Beware of this structure, this religion, this cult. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he says, there's this little thing called leaven, and it works its way in really sneakily. Beware of that. Something small, something that is hard to spot. Because we can see the big dragon coming at us with the fiery false teachings. I mean, we want to pull out our sword and slay the dragon. But what Jesus is worried about here is what sneaks in the back door. The leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And even though there's no Pharisees and Sadducees around today, their leaven is still very much around. Verse 12, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread. God, they got it, finally but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now you look at this and you go, okay, are we sure that they got this? Yeah, remember Matthew's writing this from the future of this time. So he's writing it down the road. This is not boots on the ground reporting, right? Instead, it's him going, yeah, from this point, we understood what Jesus was talking about. We got this at this point. They finally understood why it was that Jesus would make the Pharisees mad back in chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. So let's understand what this word leaven is. Where does leaven come from? Well, leaven is not yeast, okay? They're not the same thing. Leaven is actually a piece of bread from a previous batch of bread. And what they would do is they'd take that little piece of bread and they would work it into some new dough and it would leaven that loaf. It would spread to the entire loaf. The Jews took their leaven very seriously. Once a year, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Jews would rid their houses of all leaven. They'd get rid of all of it. For a whole week, they would make sure it was all gone so there was no bread. And then at the end of the week, they would take a brand new piece of dough with no leaven in it, and they would leave it sitting out. And what would happen is airborne spores would get into it, and it would start to, it would start to ferment, which would make leaven. And then they would take that piece, and they would break it, and they would use that piece for the whole rest of the year. This is what they would do year to year. So what is leaven in this? Obviously, it's not the bread. Great, we like that history story, Pastor John. But what does this mean? Leaven is a symbol of continuity. It's a symbol of doing the same thing over and over again. This is why, not because leaven was bad, not because the Egyptian bread was something not tasty, but the reason why they were told to leave the leaven of the Egyptians behind was so that they knew this is a disconnect. We are leaving the old behind, and we are brand new. Isn't that a picture of the Christian life? We are to leave the old behind and go forward with the new. Sadly, the Israelites, they got into the wilderness, and at the first instance, they, turned back. they wanted to turn back to what Egypt had. So Jesus warns the disciples, watch out for this leaven, this teaching. Pay special attention. The Pharisees have passed it down for years and years. It's been corrupted in the history of the church, there's been times where we've had to throw off what we've done before and start over again. The Reformation is a good example of that. So what is this leaven? The leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is unbelief. It's sneaky. It's insidious. It does not bang a gong and say, I'm here to fight you. Get your sword. No, it's something that comes when we're not looking for it. 
It's something that sneaks its way in. It's the old way of thinking that was original with the old man. It's the old way of thinking that was with the old woman. It's the blind world, the dead people walking around us daily, trying to push us back to where we were. Unbelief is easy, but it's not smart. It's a refusal to believe all that Jesus has said. So when he says, this is what you should do, we go, yeah, but I need to hedge my bets and plan for this. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and trust what the Bible says, but I'm also going to consult a this person. Or I'm going to do it my own way. Or maybe Jesus doesn't have my best in mind, so I'm going to do it my own way. This is not what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to look backwards. And the good news for us is we're looking through the resurrection and the crucifixion to this point. We can't help but look at Jesus and remember all that. So we can see all of it. It's been confirmed. Everything he said is true. How do we know? Because he died and rose again and ascended to the right hand. He is the truth. He is the one we need. The leaven we need is not unbelief, but we need belief. Now here's the good news. Jesus brings us new leaven. Amen? And this leaven does not corrupt. Remember I told you, leaven over time would get corrupt as it gets used year after year after year. Acts 2.27, talking about Jesus. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. There will never be a need to replace the leaven of Christ. Even more so, look at John. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread. They missed the point again. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the living bread. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus is saying, I am the new leaven. And when I work my way into you, you become a new man, a new woman. And praise be to God that all of the old leaven that we see around us, all of the leaven that is fighting to get into us today, there's going to be a day when it's all going to be wiped away. Remember, there is a feast coming, right? The Jews every year, they do their feast of unleavened bread to remind them of the past and the Passover. For us, we get to look at it and go, there is a day coming when all of the old leaven will be wiped away and this world will be transformed in a new Passover. This is the feast of the Lamb that is talked about in the book of Revelation and Jesus talks about as well here in Matthew. This is where the new heaven and the new earth come together and we come together and there's no more sin. And you go, okay, that's great. But listen to the rest of it. And because there's no sin, there's no death, there's no dying, there's no mourning, there's no pain. It's all gone because the old leaven has been destroyed. So now, what do we do with this? Well, first we must be on alert. We must look out for, we must guard, we must be aware that unbelief is at the door. Maybe it's even worked its way inside. But praise be to God, we're not stumbling around. He doesn't leave us alone. Not only do we have the sight that we have in the Scriptures, but we also have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And He is a leaven detective. He is trying to find the leaven in our lives that needs to be destroyed. So how do we, how do we battle this unbelief? Well, first, we battle it with God's Word. 
The Bible has clearly explained what it means to follow Christ, what it means to look back through the the crucifixion and the resurrection. We were dead in our sins and Jesus took them to the cross and now we can battle unbelief. So we also battle it another way. Let me ask you this. Why do we gather here on Sundays? Why do we get together? It's to worship God, right? Everybody would say that. But can't you worship God anywhere? So yeah, we do worship God here, but why do we gather? Is it to read our Bibles? Well, we can read our Bibles anywhere. Is it to sing songs? Yeah, but that's not the main reason. Is it to see friends? Well, you guys can do that on your own time. So why do we gather together? We gather together around God's Word. That's the sole reason this group of people is together this morning. It's not because we're old friends. It's not because we live in the same area. We are here for the sole purpose of hearing from God. And the way we hear from God most of the time is through His Word. And so we gather together around God's Word. And we express it in song and reading and teaching and prayer and fellowship. This is why we gather together. This is why we can't stop gathering together. We need it. The leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees is right at the door. And for some of us, it's worked its way in. And it's trying to pollute us from the inside. So we need this reset every single week to remind ourselves of the truth. To allow the Spirit to weed out the leaven. To allow the Bible, God's Word, to work its way into us and counteract the leaven. We gather every week not to catch up with old friends, not to feel comfortable, not to wash away our guilt for the week, even though those things can all happen. No, we gather to hear from God and God's Word. Now, not only do we do that here in this big gathering, but there's another bit that we also need to recognize, and that is this next point is not optional. We need to gather together and have a life together outside of this gathering. Here at New Life, we do that two ways. We have life groups and we have Bible studies. And we do these every single week. Why? Because one of the benefits of us gathering together and getting to know each other is we will remind each other of what the Lord has done. We'll remind each other of how good the Lord has been. Sometimes we're reminding each other of the things we already know. We're sitting there and going, oh, I can't see how I'm going to get through this. And somebody that knows you goes, do you remember when you said that before and the Lord did this? Or you can say, hey, you know what? I don't know your history, but I know my history. Here's what the Lord's done. Or even better, here's what he did with the Israelites. Here's what he did with the disciples. Here's what he did with fill in the blank. And we do this. When we gather in life groups, it's not around a meal or fellowship. The world does that. We gather around God's word. Otherwise, it would be a dead group. So if your life group's gathering and they're not around God's word, come see me. They're going to be in trouble. We gather together around God's word. Why? Because we need the constant reminders. Remember, the Israelites had a whole slew of feasts and songs that they did every year. Why? Because we forget what the Lord has done. Bible studies are the same way. We gather together, we let down our guard, and we dig into God's Word. So our life groups, they're on the board out there. Find one, get in one. Ladies' Bible studies tomorrow night here at 7 o'clock right over in this room. Men's Bible studies Tuesday at 6 and at 3. Because we have to be reminded of the things we forget. 
Hebrews 3 talks about this. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living of God. Okay? There's the warning. Take care. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, there's one part where it's like, yes, I have to make sure that unbelief isn't taking over. But then there's another part, which is when I see unbelief taking over in you, I have to exhort you. I have to stir you up. I have to point you to the truth. Life groups, Bible studies, church gatherings. This is when we let our guard down and we let people in. And when these people know us, they will help us remember what we've forgotten. We forget the goodness of the Lord. We forget who God is. God is good. God has been good. God will be good. And we need each other to remember that. Worship team, why don't you guys go ahead and come on up. And as we pray together here, I'm going to pray, but I also want you to pray and ask the Lord to reveal where in your life unbelief has crept in. I want you to pray that the Lord will soften your heart and allow yourself to be a part of this church gathering so that we can build each other up and grow in our faith. Because some of us right now are doing great. Some of us are doing terrible. And all together we can remember and remind ourselves of what the Lord has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be aware of what the enemy is trying to do with our unbelief. Trying to get us to doubt your goodness, trying to get us to doubt your plan, trying to get us to, to doubt whether you care. So Lord, please help us to stir each other up, exhort each other in your word. It's so hard sometimes, Lord, when things are not going well to see you. But Lord, we have each other around here and we have your word so I pray, Lord, that we would be open to being encouraged and reminding, remind, being reminded of the forgetfulness that we have towards your goodness, towards your faithfulness, towards your love. I pray, Lord, that we would do that for each other. Lord, I pray that as we spend some more time here in worship, that as we sing, these words would become exactly what we need to hear, and that, Lord, you would do a work on each of our hearts. In your holy son's name, amen.